The scripture today is Acts 19, 8 through 12. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. All right. How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Well, I figured there'd be less people this week because stupid virus still going. All right. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. I'm going to clean up a little bit. I'm going to do some uh, arranging of the furniture while I get going here. Um, so, yeah, sometimes uh, once in a while I get an idea, and I'm like, maybe this will work. Maybe this will be interesting. Maybe I'll do something, I'll do something that'll, that'll connect with people. I'll remember it, a little visualization. All right, so, um, so I got plans this morning. So, uh, it's an interesting passage. If you just listen to what he just read, there's some weird stuff that happens. And I don't know if you noticed it, but there's like handkerchiefs, healing people and stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of this stuff today and, uh, and what's going on. I think there's some literary devices that are brilliant that are being used. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of mystery as well. And so today I'm, um, somehow this turned into a sermon on the mundane work that we all do throughout our week. If your work is mundane, if your work is like exciting and life-changing, good for you. You're one of the ones that figured it out. Um, for a lot of us though, like there's this mundane aspect to what we're doing and a lot of us feel like, I have to, I'm getting mask beard again. It's been a while since I had mask beard, since I got it. You got you to fluff it up when you take the mask off. You guys know. You guys know. Um, and so there's this sense that, like, why am I even doing this? This doesn't mean anything. And uh, I've have been having a lot of conversations for, like, multiple people about vocation and work and meaning and all kinds of stuff. So we're going to talk about some of that stuff today, and I think, I think uh, Luke does something pretty fascinating here in his writing of Acts. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this. Oh, by the way, we're in Ephesus right now. Here we are. We'll talk about this as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for every person that you've brought here. Um, I pray that you would speak to us through this. I pray that you would fill us up, that you would give us happiness and joy, that you would uh, paint a picture of of what you are offering, of what you are working on, what you are doing, uh, invite us to take part in it. I pray that right now that we would all be present, that we would be calm, that, that whatever anxiety or anxiousness that, that we have about the coming week or, or the things that we've done in the past, whatever it is that we're, that we're carrying, I pray that you would allow us right now to put it down, to be here with our brothers and sisters, everyone gathered in this space. I pray that we would all picture ourselves at this table as equals and Jesus's is right at the center, the head of the table, and he uh, is serving us. And I pray that we would see this right now as, as Christ filling us up, as Christ setting the table and offering not just nourishment and food and not just conversation and thought and uh, not, just, not just that stuff, but, but communion, the, the body broken and uh, the blood poured out for all of us. I pray that we would see that as uh, not just the hope of us and the hope of the world around us, but also our vocation, that we would somehow take part in that. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so we find ourselves in Acts chapter 19. We're doing verse 8 through 12 today. Um, apparently, Paul, uh, so what Paul does every time Paul goes to a city is Paul, uh, he goes straight to the synagogue, and 
he does this because Paul sees himself as this bridge between the Gentiles and the Jews. Paul sees his entire mission as the one with the beautiful feet of Isaiah who's taking the gospel to those, uh, the proclamation of who the king is, of, of, of everything, taking this message to the Gentiles and bringing them into God's people. This, see, this is what Paul sees as his entire ministry, his entire message. So he also always, the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogues and he preaches there. Now, this is Ephesus as it looks sort of today. This is what's left over of the library of Alexandria. Oh, I'm sorry, the library that, that burnt down. We, we know that Luke likely studied here and had been here several times to, to study. Um, uh, he was a doctor, a physician. That could mean several different things in the ancient world. But we know he had been here. This was a regular gathering place. Um, we actually, when it talks about the synagogue, we don't, there's not actually any yet archaeological evidence of where a synagogue was in Ephesus, if there was one. It's, it's kind of this confusing thing. Um, but there are certain things, like at the, at the bottom of the stairs of this library, right about, okay, I'm making a little box. Can, oh, there's a thing in the way. Let me move it out of the way. Okay, so right, here, I'll make a box around it. Right here, you will find this if you walk up to it. There is this very sort of faint piece of granite with a menorah carved into it, okay? Okay. Um, this ha- people did this, first century Jewish people did this kind of stuff when they were uh, sort of marking a place as a gathering spot. So it's possible that they were using sort of the language of the synagogue and they were gathering an outdoor space. Maybe they didn't have one. Maybe they're raising money for one. We know how this kind of stuff happened. We don't know where the synagogue was, but Paul was preaching in the place that they called the synagogue very well may have been right here. Um, and it got a little heated constantly they're, they're pushing back against him. Uh, let's look at some of the things that it says here in verse 9. It says, some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe uh, and publicly maligned the way. That's a shorthand for the Christians. They didn't get called Christians until Antioch. It was an insult put upon them. So Paul left them, and Paul took the disciples with him, uh, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the words of the Lord. So... Um, Another fun fact, we don't actually know where the Hall of Tyrannus was, but um, we, know, we have sort of a general vicinity. We know this place existed, and uh, we have some interesting um, details on it from ancient manuscripts that have been found. There's one particular uh, manuscript that seems to have uh, captured an eyewitness of sort of like what it was like in the Hall of Tyrannus. Uh, this thing is called the Codex Bezea. So a codex is basically like a book. It's a stack of papyri put together with metal rings. You read it like a book. It was... New technology, right? It was Kindle of their day. Um, and they would, uh, and, and in this Codex um, Bezea, it actually gives some really interesting details about what happened here. Um, apparently, um, Tyrannus was this teacher who owned this space. He was very wealthy, and he built it, and he educated the people there, likely for free or through donations, maybe from other rich people. Um, and every day he taught from sunrise until about 11 o'clock in the morning, and then he took a break from 11 to 4, and then he taught again from 4 o'clock until it got dark again, because from 11 to 4 in the Ionian Peninsula, which is where Ephesus is, it gets incredibly hot, and these are the days before air conditioning, of course, and, and what are you going to do when it gets this hot? You can't just keep working, and so what they do is they all close down shop, and they all go home, and they go to bed, or they sleep on the roof of their house with a sort of a tent over them to create a little bit of a breeze. But basically, um, historians tell us that at 1, at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, there would be more people sleeping in Ephesus than there was at 1 a.m., okay? Like, everyone just took a nap. So, except apparently Paul. 
and the Christians. Um, Paul was a tent maker, and every day Paul gets up and he makes he, he makes tents, which is basically the word they use there is linen worker. It's, it's not necessarily tents, although that's primarily what they would have worked in. It's leather work, it's tanning, it's all kinds of things. It's heavy, hard, dirty, filthy, smelly work, um, preparing things, to, uh, you know, uh, leathers and, and fabrics to be dyed and sewed together. It's just, it's exhausting work. And, uh, and so you imagine Paul wakes up and he does this every day until about 11 o'clock. And at about 11 o'clock, he takes off his like sweatband from his head and he hangs it up and rings it out probably. And, and he takes off his, his, um, his, his apron and he hangs it on the wall. And, and then he goes down to the hall of Tyrannus that he had rented. He's probably using the money he makes from all of his work, to rent out a space for the Christians to gather so he can teach them. And so he's in there from 11 o'clock until 4 o'clock. So he goes straight to work, works all day, and all the Christians meet up at the Hall of Tyrannus, and they teach there, Paul teaches there, and, and different apostles would probably be traveling through. For two years they did this, and then at 4 o'clock they all say, break, and they all go back to work again until evening, and the next day they do, do, do it all over again. They did this every single day except the Sabbath, and they did this for years, at least two years. And from what we can tell, if you do the math, that the people entering into Ephesus at this particular time in history, Paul probably, uh, a good, reliable estimate would say that Paul probably preached to about two million people in the span of those few years in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul was, uh, was, was completely committed to this thing. Paul was working incredibly hard, getting up early in the morning, um, working hard, using his money to minister to these people like he's in the work. Um, I remember, like, if you talk to a lot, of, like, I know I have several friends who are planning churches these days. It's been an incredibly hard time for church planners right now. I know several that have, their churches have already died and fallen apart, and they plan on trying again in a few years, but simply because of COVID. Um, and COVID's been hard for all churches, but church planting in itself is incredibly difficult. It's, uh, it's, it's constantly up in the air. You have no idea whether or not you're going to make it from month to month to month. When we were planning this church, I remember in 2006, um, I lived across the street. There's like a gray house right here. I lived there, um, me and my wife, and we had like a brand new baby. And I would get up every day at 4 o'clock in the morning and walk down to Starbucks, where I was a shift manager at the corner down there, and did that for several years. I'd get off at 1 o'clock and then come back, take a power nap, watch some Rick Steves European Travels, 20 minutes or so, save the rest for later, and then, and then get to work on church stuff. Um, and I did this for a few years until I was able to like sort of stop doing that and, and the church was able to sort of provide a salary for me. Um, but Paul does this for years and years and years. And when he fishes up here, he's going to go to the next city. He's going to do it again. Paul is probably completely exhausted. He's, he's constantly being arrested, thrown in jail, beaten up, stoned. All kinds of stuff is happening to him. He just keeps going. And it's quite unbelievable when you actually look at what he's doing here. Um, so let's go a little farther here. Yeah. Acts, uh, okay, 19, 11 through 12. It says this next. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. All of his work begins to pay off. God begins to do these things through him uh, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched, uh, that had touched him, were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Super weird, all right? Now, let's talk about that. Um, so the word handkerchief is this, is this, that's the English word we use. I don't know why we use the word handkerchief. Nobody uses handkerchiefs anymore. I don't understand, like, I don't really understand why people carried handkerchiefs anyways. Um, but handkerchiefs, so like, this is the word that we translate it as, but it really in, in the first century, the, the, the word meant, it, it meant a sweatband that you would wrap around your head to catch the sweat so it doesn't fall all over the, the nice, you know, 
fabrics are using to make these tents for these rich people. Like, so he's got to keep the sweat from falling. So this is wearing around his head. That's why he's got to wring it out. He's completely soaked. The word for apron here is this word, simikinthia. Say that. Simikinthia. It's a fun word. Okay. Um, it, was, it was this girdle, like this, yeah, this girdle that, that, that workmen uh, wore wrapped around themselves to protect what was likely their only pair of clothing. So it's just basically this big apron you would wrap around yourself, probably made of leather. Um, everyone, again, had about one garment, an undergarment, and then they had this outer cloak that they would wear. Um, <clears throat> and that's all most people had. That's all Paul would have had um, in Paul's line of work. So... Uh, he's working hard, he's, he's obviously sweating, he's filthy, and people are grabbing, people are like, Paul becomes so well-known. His ministry, his words, his teachings, his healings, the things that Paul does become so well-known in the Ionian Peninsula that people are literally, when Paul gets off work and he hangs up his apron and rings out his headband and hangs it up and runs to the hall of Tyrannus to preach, people are like going in and like taking his apron and his sweatband and they're like, I got his sweatband. And they're going around and they're going, they're taking it back to sick people, and they're being healed by touching this handkerchief, this sweatband, and this apron. Like, what is happening? Why is this happening? Whose idea was this? And is this what God normally does? But I imagine it. People so filled with expectancy, with so much hope that, that God is doing something through these, like, punk rock revolutionaries that are like, um... No, come out of the Roman Empire, even though you live in the midst of it. Reject the empire, join the kingdom. We are building something brand new and different in this world that has never existed. Um, and they believe in these, this like, revolutionary message, and there's expectancy that they have. They're filled with like, sort of visions of this new kingdom, this new world springing up in the, middle of, of, in the midst of the one that they're in. And they grab these soiled, smelly garments in, of the traveling preacher. They take them around to the sick, and somehow God heals them when they do this. And it's this mystery, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, I mean, notice, though, that it doesn't say that Paul did anything. It says God did extraordinary miracles. So, like, God's doing all this stuff that nobody has any, like, true understanding of. Um, and, I mean, sometimes, honestly, God uses really, let's be honest, sometimes God uses really stupid things to, like, do good things. Like, he uses really stupid things. Um, the amount of stories I could tell you if I had time of all the stupid things that have happened that have, like, changed somebody's life. Someone says this dumb comment, or someone gets in a, a car accident and wakes up, or somebody loses their job, or somebody, just something random, some random stranger says something, and, like, God just uses this thing. I, I literally, I struggle better not to tell this story. Um, I have a friend uh, who literally tells me he came to Christ after an acid trip where uh, he was in the shower in an, at, a, at a rental property, and he did a, he had a bad trip on acid, and then he was in the shower, and the, the, there, there's this mosaic tile on the wall, and there's a dolphin. And the dolphin turns and starts talking to him. And the dolphin's like, you should really turn your life around. God's trying to get a hold of you. This dolphin preaches the gospel to him. And he's like, he's like and I came to Christ. I'm like, a talking, do talking dolphin on an LSD trip brought you to Jesus. High five. I don't know what to tell you. Like, this is... I'm not going to argue. Like, I, I don't know. I can't explain what God does. This is what God does. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but, like, Luke chose to include this random tale in his, in his, like, story that he's writing. He wants future Christians to read this. 
And so the question for the Bible scholar is, why the heck did he put this in there? Because Bible scholars are only asking the question, like, why is this there? Every, we, they, they assume that, like, everything that they read is there for a reason. It was put there so that, like, it connects to something else and creates this overarching sort of message. So, like, why this? Um, I think to understand what's going on here, we need to talk about garments and healing. There is this obscure passage in Malachi chapter 2. Uh, I want to read that to you here. Uh, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 4. And it, it says, um, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. So he's talking about, at first, this desolation that's going to occur, um, and there's going to be this sort of falling away, like this God's people will reject him once again and chase after power and money and greed and idolatry. It's the same story that we've played over and over. We see it in our own lifetimes. This is the same thing that God's people have always done, rejecting sort of the, the bottom, the, the power of God at the bottom that exercises in, in, in the service of people at the bottom. And we trade that for what we want the power of God to be, which is sort of political and, and all this military might and power and security. That's how we want to describe God. But that's not what we are given. Um, and Malachi talks about how there's going to be this time when once again God's people reject him and chase after this other thing for power and it will fail. But there will come a moment when this Messiah will rise up and the Messiah he talks about will have, he, he uses the metaphor of he'll have healing in his wings. Um, and so the, the word that is used here for, 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 for sort of wings is the same word that's used to describe the, the hem, okay, here we go. The, the hem of a, of a prayer shawl. So this is a prayer shawl given to us by somebody um, in, our, in our church. Um, if you're not familiar with this, a Jewish prayer shawl, if you go to places like um, Israel, you go to the Western Wall, this is what people are wearing. They, 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 uh, the Jewish people wrap themselves in these things to pray. Um, and there's several different ways that they would exercise it. There's several different pieces to this. You have this part here, uh, which is called the tzitzit, um, and it is, um, all of it has religious significance, every little piece, the colors, right down to the messages written on it and the way you would pray on it. Um, there are, there, there's these corners down here that are called the kanaf. Um, this is the word kanaf that is translated as wings. So when you talk about like a bird's wings, like this is the word you would use is kanaf. It's talking specifically about sort of this part right here. Um, <clears throat> and there are many ways that they would, they would that they, would, uh, that they would use this to pray. One of them was they would, they would sort of put it over their head like this. Here we go. Put it over their head like this and sort of, this is what they call, sorry, I wrote some down some, some words here. Uh, this is sort of the idea of entering into their inner chamber. Um, they, this would become sort of a prayer tent. There's this passage um, in, uh, in the book of Psalm, uh, chapter 61, I believe, and it says, it, says uh, how, it talks about how they long to always dwell in the tent uh, with God, and, and, and this is likely one of the things that they're talking about when they're out traveling, the gathering in the desert, and the gathering, and oftentimes they could cover themselves up like this and do a deep prayer, like hiding inside of what, what sort of Jesus refers to as your prayer closet, sort of this, I mean, ancient rooms didn't really have closets unless it's a synagogue. Um, and so this is sort of what they're talking about, and when you reach your arms out like this in prayer, you have these, these wings below you. Um, and so you have all of these things that, that have meaning, and it's, it's sort of this religious garment that you wear. Um, and it says that when the Messiah comes, he's going to have healing in his wings. And so first century people probably had a lot of debate and talk about this. It's constant debate about what the, what the ancient words mean of the prophets and all that. So you come to Matthew chapter 9, verse 21. By the way, this same story is found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, it's found in Luke. Um, it is... A fascinating story, but there's this story of this woman who's crawling through a crowd to get to Jesus. She's been bleeding for years and years and years. Um, 
They tell us this is likely some sort of, uh, sort of menstrual bleeding where it's sucking out vitamins out of it. Your bones begin to crack and it's painful. And, and uh, we've talked about this before in great detail. Um, and so this woman is in pain and she's crawling through a crowd because she probably can hardly walk. It probably hurts to stand up tall. And she's probably as well trying to be humble. And she's crawling towards Jesus and she's trying to touch the hem of his garment. It says, behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garments, this part down here. Um, uh, and for, for she had said to herself, if only I can touch his garment, I will be made well. Where in the world would she get an idea like that? She gets it from the prophet Malachi, and she had probably heard this, um, probably not too long ago in the synagogue. Ancient people couldn't read. They would go to the synagogue uh, to hear uh, the few, like the one or two percent of people that could read. And they would read the Torah and she would listen and they'd read the prophets and she would listen and she hears that this Messiah, when he comes, is going to have healing power in the edges of his wings, and she's been in pain for years and years and years, and she hears the Messiah is coming, and she crawls through the crowd in incredible pain, and she touches him. It says, uh, it says, Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was healed. She touches the hem of his garment, he's healed. Uh, Luke has a different memory of the situation. He says she crawled up and touched it and was healed, and then backed away, and then Jesus turned around like he felt power leave, and he's like, who touched me? What just happened? Um, and so, like, this woman believed that she could get close. She believed the words of the prophet Malachi that if she touched the edge of his garment, she would be healed. And so, this brings us back to Luke and the relentless portrayal of the apostles as Jesus. Every time you see the apostles doing anything, it's almost as if Luke is saying, Remember what I wrote in my first volume, the gospel according to Luke. And now look at what I'm writing in my second volume, the gospel, um, the, the Acts of the Apostles. And the things that Jesus does is exactly the same things that the apostles are doing in every way. They're being led by the Spirit. They're healing. They're saying the same words. They're doing the same things. They're doing the same works. They're bringing the presence of Christ with them wherever they go. They are the presence of Christ. When they gather, they are the body. And not only that, when you look at the ways that Jesus healed people, oftentimes you will see those same things happening and being reflected in the apostles. And this is no different. We have this moment um, where... We had this moment where it is no longer sort of the, uh, the religious garments. You know what, I'm going to put this one over here because from here, you're stage left and stage right. I always, I, always, I always had things backwards. All right, here we go. So beginning is over here, ending is over there. So there's this, there's this idea in the New Testament as you read that everything begins to change. Everything, uh, as Jesus does, does his work, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, as the Spirit sort of instructs the apostles on how to think about everything that they've seen and everything they've experienced, there begins to be the shift, and every religious thing that they had that had importance shifts into this everyday, normal, mundane thing and is replaced. And so you have the law, the written law, the Torah that we're supposed to follow comes off of the page and becomes the Spirit. The Spirit is with us. We no longer have this giant thing that we need a whole synagogue to keep it in uh, and, and clergy to read to us. We can, we can listen to the Spirit of God and be led. And so this is how the other Christians understood themselves. And then, not just that, the temple, the actual place where the, the cult practices are done, where you, you go through all the ceremonies and the sacrifices, that gets thrown out and becomes the gathering of God's people. And so Paul can write to the church in Corinth, in, in the city of Corinth, there's temples everywhere, and the Christians have no temple, and they're just eating meals in the open air under a little tent roof or something like that, um, and sharing, and this is how they're having church. 
and they're wishing and dreaming that they were, they were important like every other temple, that they had a temple to their God so that everyone could see what their God is like. And Paul writes to them and says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple? Don't you understand that when you come together in this way, you are the temple? He's not calling them individually temples. This was the excuse my grandmother used to use for telling me not to get tattoos. Your body's the temple. Well, Grandma, you eat a lot of McDonald's. I've seen you smoking. Um, so like... Don't you know that your body's a temple? It's like, but Paul says this. He's talking about when you gather, like that is your temple. People can look at you and they can see what your God is like. This is what it, this is, what it is. And so every little thing that they had becomes this normal thing. Every religious thing, right down to the, the garments, the, the healing in the, in the wings of the garments of the Messiah and the, people, the religious thing that you do. You pray and you go through the rites and everyone has to see it. And it's a special spiritual church religious thing that is specifically for worshiping God. And suddenly, we find ourselves with something else doing the same work. Look what I still have from 2006. Still have it. My daughter uses it when she's cooking. Because Okay, here we go. So, oh, good old times. This was simple work. I really liked it. You get in a, you get in a groove, you get in a rhythm, you make, make oh, it still ties around the front. Whew. It's close. I was worried about that. I didn't try this on. Here we are. What can I get started for you? Um, I was a drive-thru guy, and ever since I have a hard time going through drive-thrus because, like, I feel, I feel for them every time. And so, like, people in the car with me want to take their time, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what I want, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're poor people, they're waiting, and they're waiting, they have stuff to do, they're waiting. Okay, so, I get anxiety going through drive-thrus now because I did this. Um, and so, this whole thing gets replaced by this apron and this sweaty headband. The work of God in the temple, the spiritual, you know, garments that you wear, that everyone has to see, suddenly God is found in this, the mundane, and they're taking, the, it, it's, it's his everyday work clothes that are doing the same thing as the spiritual clothes. I mean, this, that's what this whole entire sort of message is about. It's finding Christ in the common. That's why God, Jesus gave us the idea of communion. Hey, when you gather, here's something I want you to do. I want you to take a, a loaf of bread. I want you to break it. I want you to take some wine. I want you to pour it and separate it into glasses. Everyone from the same piece. And spread it around her because, because when we come to the table, no matter what we bring, no matter how spiritual or moral our lives are, when we come to the table and sit down, no matter how good we've done spiritually or religiously, we all receive the same thing. All of us. Okay? So you sit at the table and God blesses each and every one of us as equals. And there's this there's this thing that happens where he says, hey, so this is just bread and it's just wine. You've been to a, a thousand meals and parties and gatherings where you've had bread and there's wine and that's just something that is at every house. And so when you have this bread and you have this wine, though, I want you to see it as something different. I want you to see it as the presence of God and a symbol of what God is doing right now in your place, in your midst. And so the body of Christ is broken for those around us. The blood of Christ is poured out for those around us. And so when, I've never preached in an apron. It's really distracting when I look down. Um, and so this, it's really like, there's, there's this sense in which God takes all of the religiosity and, moves it, and the spirituality moves it out of the temple when Jesus is on the cross and he's dying, he's suffering, and there's this earthquake and there's this Jesus saying, they don't know what they're doing, forgive them. They don't understand what, what is happening. They don't understand what you are doing, God. Please forgive them. Don't, don't, let, them, don't let them suffer for this action. And he's begging for mercy. And as he's doing this, there's this 
Gentile there, this guard, this Roman soldier, and he looks up and he says, surely this is the Son of God. This is the first Gentile to recognize Jesus as king. And it happens while he's dying on the cross. And the moment this happens, there's this earthquake and the veil is rent. And as the story goes, like it falls and everyone can see clearly into the Holy of Holies. What is happening here? It is, it is the separation between the sacred and the secular. And it's all, it's all falling down. It's all coming back together. And God says, I never wanted it to be separate. I never wanted it to be far away. I never wanted to live in this tent in the middle of you. I never wanted to, any of that. That's why God moves closer and closer. And so God enters into a human body. And it's, the text says that he tabernacles with us by entering into, like, he becomes the temple first and shows us how to become the temple. And everything moves from inside the temple and flows out to everything else. And so it's like the work of the priests and the work of the, of the rabbis, it's sort of like a, like a vessel, like a container. And they, they hold the blessings of God and they carry these and they, they dish them out. And you come to them and they dole out the blessings of God. But it's almost like at the, at the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the whole thing. The, it's, like, it's like the vessel has been broken. The, the veil has come down and the presence of God just pours into the streets. And it's like, we don't need this anymore. Gather with three people on the side of the road on a corner and pray, God is with you there. The thing that God is doing can happen in any place at any time with anybody, anyone. And God will use anyone. Christ in the common. One of the busiest, biggest Blessings that Christ has given us is the ability to see him in the common, everyday things. He makes the common, mundane things of our life holy and good. To believe that, that like Paul, our work matters to God, that, that God is in our work. That somehow, the work that Paul was doing when he was wearing the apron was just as important as the work he was doing in spiritual life, where he's teaching scriptures. That somehow that work was being saved up in the sweat of his brow and his body and it, and the filth, and it's, it's in the fabric, and they're taking the fabric out, and they're like, because of the work of Paul. God is working through this to bring healing to you. Paul was faithful, and God is using him to bring it to you. As children of the Enlightenment, we love to get hung up on miracles. People ask things all the time to me. They're like, okay, Jesus walking on water. Okay, if I was on the beach that day, and I looked out, what would I have seen? Would I have seen Jesus walking on the water? Or is this like a metaphor, like an allegory? And you could spend your whole life chasing this thing. You could spend your whole life trying to make sense and get everything in its cute, perfect little boxes. But it doesn't matter. There's no way to wrap your mind around and grasp what God is doing. God is making everything that you hold just very normal. He's making it sacred. He's, He's imbuing life into all of it. Oftentimes we struggle with what Greg Boyd calls religion blindness. Um, religion oftentimes, uh, and more often than not, it becomes this substitute for the presence of God. We, we, we want to sort of relegate, like I have my week, and then on the weekends I designate time to be present with my people and with God, with Christ, to, to ponder the things, and I make this time. And yeah, that's great, but the reason Jesus' peers didn't see God's presence with him is because, is because he wasn't religious, he was mundane. And so he looked at people, the world's looking at Jesus, this mundane, normal person. Um, the prophets write about how the Messiah would, We'd be basically ugly. Like, there's nothing about him that would draw eyes to him. He's poor. He's, want, he's surrounded by peasants and failed rabbi, a failed sort of rab, rabbinical students. And these are the people that gathers around him. And so you look at him, and you're like, look, a gathering, a general gathering of losers. This is what you see when you look at Jesus and his church. And yet, this became the most powerful force in the world. The reason people didn't see God in it is because it looked mundane. 
And Jesus enters in and he says, yeah, every single thing that you look at and see as mundane, God is using that and working through that to do something in this world. The problem is you're not aware of it, so you have no ability to take part in it. You can spend all your time trying to figure out the miracles and how they worked and this and that and trying to debunk or prove whatever, but, but, but the fact is you're ignoring where God actually is. He's in the mundane. He's in the normal. It's just bread. It's just wine. That's all it is. No, but when you choose to see it, as the broken body of Christ, as the poured out blood of Christ, when you choose to see tent making as this thing that is bringing healing to people in the world, when you choose to see this, that's when it begins to reveal its power. Uh, a little quote from Gregory Boyd, a lot of Boyd this morning. Uh, if we can't discern God's presence in our day-to-day lives, it's unlikely that we'll find him at a revival. A lot of people just come to places like this looking, I gotta hear from God. He's been speaking to you all morning. He was speaking to you right before you said that sentence and he's speaking to you when you're done. Um, the problem is like you assume God is relegating himself to different parts of your life, and he's not. In the most joyful, beautiful moment of your life, God is there. In the darkest, most evil moment of your life, God is there and is perfectly capable of actually using that thing for some good. This is one of the things that God is doing. Um, I remember I went to a... I'm checking this off. I went to a, um, a sort of this mountain sort of retreat thing in Montana like a decade and a half ago to, uh, there you go, it's an advertisement. This sermon brought to you by Starbucks. Um, and I went to this retreat in Montana and, and it was with like 10 other young pastors, church planners, and, and we were going there to read the books and the works of the church fathers and the desert fathers and to just feel all intellectual and uh, in a beautiful place and, 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 you know, assume that like, oh, God's going God's gonna, to, what God's going to do, he's going to do through these intellectual works that we're going to read in our, uh, you know, it's, it's all just, it's our wisdom is going to overflow and we're going to come back to these spiritual gurus. Um, and what happened was, uh, I was pretty young and had not read a lot of theology and so the church fathers were making any sense to me. Um, I was mostly reformed at the time. I was coming out of a, of a heavy reformed sort of, um, uh, sort of renovation of my faith. Um, and so in my reformed faith, I, I remember reading the church fathers and saying, well, these are a bunch of heretics. Um, and so there's, if you're into church history, you'll know like, things got way far from the church fathers. Um, and it wasn't until later that I was actually to gain all the wisdom. I didn't get any of it while I was on this trip. But what happened was they, we were eating a meal and this, this 17-year-old kid comes and knocks on the door. We're at this cabin. And he's like, hey, you guys want to help? I hear your pastors. Uh, I don't, somehow that sways us. You, know, you want to help? I hear your pastors. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we have to. <laughs> so, um, and uh, they, he said, he's like, I need, I need, I'm splitting some wood up here. And he's kind of a scrawny kid. We're like, oh yeah, we'll come out and help you. So, um, you know, we're, we're in Montana, and people are calling it Montana. some toxic masculinity stuff going on. And so we, uh, we hopped in the, guy, the back of the guy's pickup truck, and we're like, this will be fun. So we, he drives us down the road to go up to the top of this mountain, and there had been this fire, and it's all burnt down, and they're chopping, they're all the, all the, they're chopping the trees down so they don't kill people that are walking through the woods, uh, the trees that are dead. Chopping them down, chopping them up, and creating stacks of firewood from the inside of them, uh, and loading them up on the back of the truck. And we did this for like two or three hours, backbreaking work in the heat of, of, of the sun on top of a mountain in Montana. So we finished this, and we, we hop back in the back of the truck on top of all the wood, and we drive down. Instead of taking a left to go back to the cabin, he takes a right. I'm like, here we go. We're going to be kidnapped. And we take a right. He drives us down into this sort of center of town and takes a, a side road, and we go down this dirt road up until like sort of this hilly area, and there's this valley with all of these sort of shanty houses. 
Um, I had never been to Montana. I didn't know the history of sort of everything. Apparently, it was a a big logging state, and I think it was something during the Obama administration. They they realized, they did some math and realized, oh, we're in trouble if we keep logging at the rate we are. So they cut back on the logging, which caused thousands of people uh, to lose their jobs and their livelihoods, and there was no safety net to catch them. And so they they fell into absolute abject poverty and were driving into this shantytown that I don't know how it exists, uh, in America, and it's, it's like some of them have plywood floors with a thin layer of dirt and these corrugated metal roofs that they had just built themselves. And the kid jumps out of his truck and runs over and knocks on the door, and his family comes out, this young family, husband, wife, like three kids, and they come running out, and they're beaming, and they're so happy, and there's all these families, and they all start coming out, and they come to the back of the truck, and they start taking wood, and, and they pile it up right in the center of their gathering, this pile it up in the center of their little place where all their houses are and they pile it up as high as they can and they, they have a little place with a little roof and they put it under there and it's protected and they invite us over and they pour us tea and sing songs and I was just blown away by like that, that work we did that afternoon changed the lives of, of for at least a few weeks of everyone here and it was the sweat of our brows and the work of our hands and, and this changed me. Ever since then, something like I was never the same. And what God had for me was not the intellectual spiritual work of, of the book reading. It was the backbreaking logging work of taking this, seeing a people that I didn't know were here and that were suffering. And that's what God wanted to do. And we're always convinced that this is what God is doing. But oftentimes it is actually in this like these Simple moments like this. That if we awaken ourselves up and we think about it, we will realize that God is present. And I I went from expecting to learn from church fathers, but I came to learn from the poor. And then I remember different quotes like when Jesus said, when I was naked, you didn't feed me. When When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't come visit me. And what he's telling you is like, hey, I would love to spend time with you. You know where to find me. It's not in the ivory towers of academia. It's where these people are suffering. That's where I am. That's where I will meet you. And it's because of Christ that we've moved from sort of this clerical state of the priests and and the central people doing all the work to everyone having a piece of the spirit and being able to do the work. When you put on your apron, your uniform, your work uniform, your hard hat, your accountant glasses, your, your scrubs, you are putting on the religious vestments for the temple in which you will be working. The message of Genesis, do you know why there are seven days? Ancient temples were built in measurements of seven. They would cut all the pieces and gather them all, and they would build them in seven days if they could, if not seven weeks or seven months, or even seven years if it was a massive temple. But no matter what, when you're building temples to these gods, seven is the number of perfection, and seven is, is, the, is the number of, which, of measurements in which we build a temple to a god. And so God builds his own temple and he makes it the earth. The earth is God's temple. It is his footstool. It's, where, it's the throne where he rules from. All of this is the work that God has for you looks a lot more like this. What is the mission that you have in that space? Why did God bring you there? To make money and then retire? No, there are people there who need the presence of Jesus in their life. There are people there um, who need you, who are in this cycle of 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 
taking part in these sort of communal sins that turn into this body of sin that, that force them into a life they don't want to live. And what they need is people speaking goodness into their life to turn this body of sin into a body of goodness so that everyone who enters into that space can be filled up by it. Where you are working, this place can be filled with the goodness of God. It can become a well. Even if it's not a particularly religious place at all, even if it's the furthest from that, we know that this is where God meets us, in the prisons, amongst the hungry and the naked and the poor. In the places that religious people look at and say, I cannot believe you were there. I cannot believe you're gathering and sitting with these people. That is what Jesus is doing. That is where the work of Christ is being done. Um, I was at a conference many years ago, and the, the speaker, I remember, was talking about sort of this similar kind of thing, how God wants to use, like, your work and what you were doing. God is in that. It's, it's not this separate thing. And this, this man raised his hand in the back, and he was like, not my work. He was like, what do you do? He was like, I make the packaging for diuretics for people who are constipated. That's what I do. He's like, tell me about your work. He's like, well, that's what we do. He's like, yeah, but when you're designing a package for something to help people get unconstipated, what are you thinking? What are you doing? He's like, well, I mean, it's got to look a certain way because the packages all kind of have a certain look because people that are looking for them are in a hurry. And they, they're looking for a certain kind of pill, and it looks a certain kind of way. It's got a certain kind of packaging. So we stay within this sort of, you know, like parameters and this and that. He's like, okay, I want you to ponder for a second and imagine that there was nobody doing your work anywhere in the world. And yet you have been traveling for three weeks to all these different places in the world. And you find yourself in need of the product that you help make. I want you to know there's nothing more sacred and holy in that moment than somebody making that pill, that, that box of pills for you to have. They can't, they can't be present. They can't love their family. They can't be a nice person. They can't do any work, good work of any kind until their problem is solved. And you are the one who is solving it. Suddenly the guy's like, all right, feel a little better. You're beginning to realize, like, no, like, God is present in that somehow, in all of it. The tent making, the sweat coming off his brow, and God's like, yeah, yeah, I can use that too. I can use the apron. I, I can use all of that. I actually don't need this anymore. What I need is this. Let's, let's stop focusing on the religious and let's focus on the, the, the everyday, being present with God's people there and with the world. The work that you do, the way you take part in, in the ordering of God's creation is no longer relegated to the category of secular and meaningless. Your work, whether in the home or outside of it, it, it may not have some big fanfare or spiritual work of some kind, but God is as much at work there as in any church, in any service, in any missionary endeavor. God is every bit as much at work in your home, around your dinner table, when you're putting your children to bed, uh, when, you're, when you're making coffee. God is every bit as work in that space as, as he is right now in this space, always. And there should be an expectancy of that. You should expect to walk into your room and think, God is doing something here and I'm going to find out what it is and I'm going to take part of it. Even if it's just the cheering up of one person through a word or a smile or a conversation that will somehow begin this connection that will transform both of us in some way through the Spirit of God. And so if you are here and you are feeling just the general tension about your work. I mean, I know every one of you have contemplated quitting your jobs in the last year. Everyone has, and most of you probably actually already have. Uh, everyone I know is switching jobs somewhere. Um, but I want you to know, like, no matter what it is, God is already present, He's already in it, He's already working. I want you 
to try to have your eyes open to it. What is the mission God has for you in this space? What does it look like? Can God use something so simple? Yes, he can. I did the funeral of, of a man about two months ago. His name was Cutter. I met Cutter when I worked at Starbucks. He, uh, he, has a, he was a tattoo artist. He has a brain tumor. Um, it grew for about 20 years and killed him slowly in our midst over years. And when he first would show up at Starbucks, he would bring this chest set and he would set it down at the table and he would order his coffee. It was like this, it was the worst drink you could order. It was terrible for you. This giant white mocha, it was like a really expensive drink, but he's like, hey, I'm do whatever I want. I've got brain cancer. Like, this is how he talked. He's like, all the time, I do whatever I want. And he'd get his drink and he'd sit down and he would set up a chess table and people would sit down. I'd take my shift. People hop in and sit down and play chess with him. And he wore this hat and says, I love Jesus. And he could hardly talk straight at all. And he talked like with a, with a big growl in his voice. And you would sometimes hear him yelling, glory, really loudly when we did worship. And my last day at Starbucks, I said goodbye to him. I was like, hey, man, this is my last day. He's like, what? I was like, it's my last day. He's like, where are you going? I was like, well, I'm a pastor. He's like, really? I love Jesus, man. I was like, I can tell. And he didn't realize he was wearing his I love Jesus hat. He thought I was telling him I could tell because of his smile. He just got even smiler. He's like, yeah, all right. So I'm like, I can tell. I can tell you love Jesus. Uh, and he's like, where's your church? And he showed up that week. He rode, his, he rode his three-wheeled bike down, walked in with a walker. For years, was present with us. Brought all kinds of people into the church. Ministered to all kinds of people. Would randomly, once in a while, give people money. I've seen him hand people gold Gold coins worth thousands of dollars because he knew people were in need. He's like, here you go. I didn't ask any questions. He just, like, he, he just brought life, man. There's a video on YouTube of us singing this song back in 2007 or 8, and I'm playing a song, and we're singing it, and you can hear him in the back just yelling and screaming. It's still on there. Once in a while, once in a while I go on there and watch it, and I can hear him. God used chess. God used my terrible coffee-making skills. God used the presence and the stupid I love Jesus had. God uses all of these things somehow to work together to enter into his kingdom. And his eternal work is done through it. And so I don't know what that means for you. Maybe you've just lost the ability to see any goodness in your work. I hope you can find it again. I hope you can see that God's in it. He really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Inspire all of us. Help us to understand that you're in it. You are present with us right now, speaking to us, working to us. Through the struggles, through the fights, through the debates, through all of it. But you take ordinary, regular garments and make them holy, and you heal people with them. And you take tax collectors who have stolen from, their own peop- stolen from their own people for years and you make them your missionaries and they write, to your, they write your sacred texts. You take, you take Pharisees who have been responsible for the, the murder of women and men and children and you make them your mouthpiece to bring your message to the Gentiles. You can do anything. And so breathe life into whatever it is our hands are doing. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We are going to do the Lord's Prayer today, shall we? Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the greatest Sunday of your life.